Miami is going to host some World Cup games, but wait, Miami Gardens is actually the host. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. We're going to demand love at Miami Gardens. We're going to reap the benefits of FIFA World Cup coming to our city. Let's face it, when Hard Rock Stadium hosts a sporting event, if it's televised, the shots on TV are of South Beach. We spoke with Mayor Rodney Harris about the World Cup 2026 and Miami Gardens getting the benefits it deserves. Also, solar power is growing in Florida, but there are a lot of people still on the fence about installing it. Today, we hope to help you find answers to your questions about solar. And finally, it's Wildlife Thursday, and we're going to look at a few different creatures. Some are prickly and some are destructive. All of that today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. The dreams of local soccer fans are coming true. South Florida is one of the 11 places in the U.S. that will host at least some soccer games during the 2026 World Cup. More specifically, really, Miami Gardens is playing host. The games will be at Hard Rock Stadium. I sat down earlier this week with Miami Gardens Mayor Rodney Harris. We talked about what kind of credit, what kind of media and financial benefits that the city's hoping to receive for hosting an event of this scale. And really, to get some love compared to broadcasters mostly showing off Miami. Congratulations, Miami, South Florida is going to get to host one of the biggest sporting events in the world. I mean, some of the games for the World Cup. Is Miami Gardens, though, going to get any love? Well, we're, we're going to demand love at Miami Gardens. We, we've, we've always done that. It's still early in the process. Uh, so we're, we're going to reap the benefits of FIFA World Cup coming to our city. Uh, we did the same with Formula One and some other events. So we're looking forward to it. We're excited about it. And FIFA is one of those events that uh, that's world-class. It's a world-renowned event, international event. We've gotten to a point where we're sort of used to handling these types of events now. We know the region around us is going to benefit from it, and so will Miami Gardens. We'll, we'll make sure of that. You know, I mean, there are a couple of different ways that obviously a community benefits, and I want to ask about both. But obviously the first one is the visual. So whenever you have, for example, a Dolphins game, a Hurricanes game, a Super Bowl, any event out of Hard Rock Stadium, um, when you're watching it on television, you tend to see and hear the announcers talk about Miami. They talk about South Beach, pictures of the beach, pictures of downtown. They don't talk about Miami Gardens. Is that something that you could change? Can you get the announcers for the World Cup to say, here we are at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami Gardens? Uh, that That's something we definitely will work on. We did it with Formula One, and they did a great job at announcing that Formula One was being held. It was the Miami Grand Prix being held in Miami Gardens. And then uh, a lot of the advertisement that was around indicated that. So that's something that when we sit down and talk to them in reference to what are some of the benefits for the city, that'll be part of those benefits, I'm sure. 
Let's go back to the last Super Bowl just a few years ago when it was in Miami, when it was in Miami Gardens. Tell me how your city benefited from that. Well, we made sure that they stated that the Super Bowl was being held in Miami Gardens. Even though it was a Miami Super Bowl, uh, we made sure that the media announced that it was being played and held in, at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami Gardens. So those events now is, is starting to get to a point where everybody knows, especially the media, that uh, we learned from that Super Bowl and we did a better job with Formula One. So I'm sure now we, we have the tools and the, 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 the vision for it, and we'll do the same with the World Cup. What are you hearing from local businesses and from residents as to, you know, what the benefits they're getting? Are they happy? Do they feel like they're getting, you know, their fair shake in this, or do they feel like there should be more? Uh, we will always listen to our residents and try to address their concerns. Uh, when, as it related to uh, Formula One, the concerns were environment and safety, and we worked with organizations to put safety measures in place to mitigate any harm to the community. And we also put a business component in place with Formula One uh, that allowed them to use our small restaurants and businesses here in our community at no cost to them and they reaped all the benefits from that. So we'll we'll do something similar to that. We're going to look for something similar to that. And as a city leader, uh, we'll we'll work with the organizers of the World Cup to ensure that this event is also beneficial to our residents and businesses. So some of the similar things that we did with Formula One, we'll we'll do the same thing with with the World Cup. Now, you brought it up a few times, and I, I, I might as well just jump in and let's talk about that because that was the last big event, was the Formula One race this this year. Um, I know beforehand, and we had talked about it on the program, there was concern that there would be a noise factor. So after the race was over, you know, was it a success, and what did the residents tell you about that noise? There was no noise. It was a huge success. Uh, the people said that, Formula One would cause your ears to bust and bleed and it would cause your head to explode from the noise from the cars. But the cars that's, that runs along the turnpike in 826 make more noise than the Formula One cars did. So it was a huge success as far as noise mitigation. Uh, we had some issues with uh, I, I would say we had some issues with the amount of traffic that came to our city, but we were able to handle that as well. We have designated parking locations and we learned a lot from big events like Super Bowl and Formula One on how to handle the traffic and how to handle congestion in the city from major events like that. If any city can handle that, Miami Gardens is one that can. Again, you have another huge, I mean, this is a huge international event and it brings a lot of big names and, celebrities to the stadium again i want to just get a, a sense of like how the city what you gain from it by the way do you even have a number like can you say because i was looking for this anywhere like how much economically did it benefit the city just that one event well that's still brand new right now for uh actually 
putting together the, the numbers because the event just really took place and putting together the actual numbers of what it brought to the South Florida region. Uh, but for our city, we negotiated a community benefits package that included a $5 million uh, payout payable to the city over 10 years with a million dollars up front. Uh, we had development of the F1 in schools, our STEM program for students. Uh, we had paid internships for high school and college graduates here from, from our local universities here in the community. And our local res restaurants participated in, uh, in the on-site sale of food and non-alcoholic beverages without a buyout fee. So all the money that they made, it was theirs. We had a bunch of allotment of tickets for residents, for our, for our residents to experience Formula One. And that became a big success as well. So we had a, a great package that benefit package that came with for our community. And now we're working on how we're going to get this money out, not necessarily get the money out, but what programs we're going to put in place with some of this money. The STEM programs continue. Formula One even has a program that's ro rolling out for small businesses right now, a loan program that they partner with Truist, and they, they're going to target the Miami Gardens businesses and restaurants here in our community that they can apply for those uh, loans. But that program hasn't rolled out yet. It'll be rolling out real soon. So I, I mean, and I wanted your take on this. I'd read in a couple of places that the estimates for the region should be four hundred million dollars for this event for the for, for the Formula One race. Do you, do you have any idea, any estimate of what percentage of that is Miami Gardens? No, I don't have any. I don't have those numbers now at hand. No, I don't. Okay. Uh, but you're overall happy with it. It it turned out to be you. You're saying it was a success. It was a, it was a major success, and I'm happy with it because we had over the years we've had over a hundred and hundred and twelve hundred and fifteen events at the stadium that we never had and that we never got a benefits package for. So this was the first time that we were able to have a major event like this come into our city. And we were able to receive a benefits package from it. We're talking with Miami Gardens Mayor Rodney Harris about how his city is fighting to get the benefits of hosting games as big as the World Cup. What do you want to see FIFA and the networks, the stories they tell about Miami Gardens? How do you want Miami Gardens to be presented? But what do you want people around the world to know about your city? Well, and here's the, str the strange thing. People around the world after Formula One, is we get contact contacted from places like London, China, Dubai. People have called us from as far as Texas and all over the United States trying to figure out what are we doing to get these types of events in our city. So I want, I want FIFA and the World Cup to be able to tell our story and let people know that Miami Gardens is a city that is growing. It's a city where you can come live, work, and play and have positive vibes here. The hospitality our residents show to those coming into our city is tremendous. So we want to make sure that our story is told and, 
And those are some of the things that we would sit down and explain to FIFA. And we have when we first was negotiating and talking about FIFA coming here. Those are some of the things that we explained to them before they made the decision to come here, that we are a city that can host major events like the Super Bowl, like Formula One and like the World Cup. But it's our ability to be hospitable to those that come into our community. That is the one thing that I want, not only the media, but FIFA to take away from Miami Gardens, that this is a great place. Everything that's shown on TV is not true, that people can come here. And if you look at what took place during Formula One, we had people walking miles and miles through our community just to get to the stadium for the, for the event. And everybody had something positive to say about Miami Gardens, whether it was a resident that came out of their houses and gave them some water to get to the stadium or whether it was they never been to a restaurant in Miami Gardens that was serving conch salad or fried conch and they were able to sit down and eat. Uh, and then we had people from other countries that said, man, we never knew that this piece of Miami-Dade County was here. Those are some of the stories about Miami Gardens that I would like for the media and FIFA to get from this event. Again, we still have, you know, about what, four years before that next World oh, Cup? <laughs> we got time to get all that stuff out. Between, yeah, between now and then, just what's your vision? What would you like to see? You know, perhaps what what additions or what other things you'd like to to see happen between now and then that to boost up the city, you know, because once those cameras are on, I mean, this this is next to the Olympics, the biggest event in the world. And you will have not millions, but probably billions watching. Well, what I would like to see, I would like for them to show that there will be some some practice events that will take place on our parks. I would like for them to see uh, the possibility of, of some of the soccer players being able to interact with our kids here in the city. Um, we definitely would love to see uh, FIFA accept Miami Gardens as a, a soccer place because this is a diverse city. We have people from all around the Caribbean, um, people from all around South America, uh, that lives here who participate in soccer. So this is going to be a major event for us. We haven't gotten any pushback as of yet from anyone in reference to FIFA coming. And matter of fact, every resident that I've spoken to in reference to FIFA had nothing but positive things to say about FIFA coming to Miami Gardens. So we want the world, we want to be able to have a stage where we can show the world who we are, what we do, and let them know that we are Miami Gardens and we appreciate the fact that people are seeing us that way and accepting who we are and giving us the opportunity to show off our city. Mayor, congratulations on that and you know, we'll we'll talk again before the World Cup begins. Anytime, give us a call anytime and we'll be glad to talk. Again, that is Miami Gardens Mayor Rodney Harris talking about being the host city for the 2026 World Cup, some of the games. Remember, the numerous cities across the country will be hosting games. And by the way, you know, if you live in Miami Gardens, I'd love to hear from you. Find us on Facebook at WLRN Sundial. 
I'd love to hear from you. You know, when when there's a football game, a big concert, a big event, F1, Formula One, uh, how do you benefit? You know, do you see that business? Share with us on Facebook. Love to hear from you. Well, still to come, if you've always wanted to know more about setting up solar panels, we might have the answers to your questions. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. You know, Florida is one of the biggest producers of solar energy. We're right there behind California and Texas. And that's according to Solar Energy Industries Association. But if that's true, where are all the solar panels? And why aren't there more? Well, today we want to help people better understand solar energy and how it works, how much it costs, and anything else that you want to know about solar energy. Anything you might have been nervous to ask. There is no questions that's too simple or too silly on this. Before we get to our questions, our lead producer, Katie Munoz, visited a homeowner who had solar panels installed in Pembroke Pines this past fall. I don't know if we're just out of range here with the Wi-Fi or not, but I'm going to see, see if we can switch it over. We're sitting under the gumbo limbo tree in Scott Lewis's front yard in Pembroke Pines. He's showing me his energy usage from his solar panels in real time on an app. And what this particular app does is every 15 minutes it, it kind of changes, it updates the readings here to give you the latest on how much energy you're generating and what's happening with the system. Lewis got a loan based on the equity of his house to fund his upfront costs, between sixteen dollars and $17,000 for the panels. But doing it through the co-op was less expensive than if he'd gone solar on his own. Plus, a federal tax credit helps. Laura Telez is the South Florida Program Coordinator for Solar United Neighbors. We help to facilitate the competitive bid review and bid proposal, but the co-op members form a selection committee, and then they're the ones that select the installer. People can always reach out to us with any questions, and it's truly like a community effort. Telez says the extra energy Lewis's solar panels generate goes back to the grid for his neighbors. So you are producing, and then there's leftover that you're exporting into the grid, and so you get a credit. That eco-conscious thinking was one of the things that attracted Lewis. He used to work for Broward County as a natural resource specialist. He's semi-retired now, and he argues the best part of going solar is knowing that he's reducing his ecological footprint. Not just, oh, okay, what's in it for me is, you know, how do you leave this earth? I mean, certainly my parents and and grandparents thought about the world as as a place that they have to take care of other people as well. So I think that's an important value for all of us to share. And again, uh, that is uh, the story from Katie Munoz, lead, our lead producer. We're joined now by Laura Tellus, the South Florida Program Coordinator for South uh, for Solar United Neighbors. Again, a nonprofit that helps set up co-ops to help people, groups of people, set up solar. Laura, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much for having us today. And we have been hearing from a lot of listeners on this. I got a lot of questions. I got a lot of comments. We heard from Marika Lynch in Miami. She says, quote, Honestly, I don't know where to start. I'm afraid of being fleeced, but I'd love to do this. Laura, uh, you know, look, again, you you help set up co-ops so you can get groups of people involved. But what are the steps if someone like Marika wants to start? Where, where do you start? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's where many people are. And that's one of the reasons that we you know, that we exist to provide support for people that don't know where to start. Um, The technology is, is, you know, um, easy 
to use, uh, but you know, understanding the equipment, uh, what the installation process is like can be overwhelming. So we do uh, have a lot of resources on our website, uh, solunitedneighbors.org. We have frequently asked questions. People can reach out to us. We also hold like solar one-on-one info sessions. What is, um, the, what is the biggest challenge for somebody starting? Usually what's the biggest challenge to get started? I think just understanding that um, it's a lot easier than people realize. And I think it's just doing that first step of maybe doing a little bit of research, understanding a little bit more, and maybe getting a few proposals uh, from a few different contractors. And then, of course, I mean, look, I'm going to go back to what Marika said. Worrying about getting fleeced. Cost. Cost about uh, of these things. Is it, you said it's easy, but is the cost low or is it high? Yeah, so it is a long-term investment. So a system comes with a warranty of 25 years. So I think that's something that is important for people to think about. It might seem that it is expensive, but when you think about how much will I be spending on electricity for the next 25 years, um, there's definitely a really great return on investment. We have a really great abundant solar energy resource. Um, and then we do co-ops in South Florida and many parts of the state, um, you know, every year. So for this specific listener, we actually have a co-op that's open in Miami right now. So co-ops are free to join. There's no obligation of going solar. And we provide all of the support and all of the resources to help people along the way. It is usually when it comes to costs, I'd imagine it's also who you're going with, what kind of solar panels you're, you're buying, because... They come from many different parts of the world. Um, but can you give me an idea? Like, of, you know, I, I understand that I'm getting my money back in the long run, but what's the upfront cost? How bad could it be? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so what we have as an average Florida solar co-op pricing, so this is our average pricing in a co-op, is about $2.25 per watt. Um, like an average size system in South Florida would be about an eight kilowatt system. Um, and you're looking at about $18,000. Uh, there is a federal tax credit. Um, it's 26% this year and it's going down to 22% next year. But it is a credit. It is not a rebate. So people need to have tax liability to be able to take it. If they were able to take it in this scenario, their net cost would be a little bit over $13,000 and their net profit would be um, over $27,000 I see. over I 25 years. I'm going to go back to, again, because we've gotten so many questions and comments from folks uh, around South Florida. We heard from Kiara and Miramar. Uh, they said, quote, I don't like the insane cost of batteries and power being off when everyone else's is off. The thought of having solar for me is so I have continuous power stored in the battery banks. However, if FPL shuts off your power so that you don't backfeed into their grid, that deterred me from solar when I looked into it a few years ago. It's just not worth it. Do you know what he's talking about there? You know, he's got the talking about the battery, but if FPL, FPL can shut off your power and then you can't use your own battery? Um, no. So what happens is if you have solar and you don't have battery backup, if you don't have batteries, uh, then if there's a utility outage, 
um, then your solar system shuts off automatically and that is a safety mechanism to protect any utility workers that are working on that outage to basically make sure they're not electrocuted. So if you want to have a uh, backup when there is an outage, even if you have solar, you need to consider storage. And then that, uh, you have to get those batteries and, and that yes. batteries were, you know, they're not cheap. Yes, they are still expensive. Um, so solar will definitely save folks money and then storage, you know, provides a service. Uh, uh, most of the people that we see go solar without batteries, but we're seeing more and more people interested in storage. Okay, let's. I wanted to get a sense from you because you you work here in South Florida uh, with this group. Again, this is a group around the country working in many states, but you're focused in South Florida. I just want to get a sense. Florida is number three now in in creating solar uh, energy behind California and Texas, and it makes sense where the sunshine state, but you know, I've lived here a long time. I don't see a lot of solar panels. Is it the 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 government? Is the government Florida Florida's government supportive of this, or is it the utility companies? What is it? Why don't we have more? So that is a great question. So even though we are the third in the country, most of the solar that we have in the state is what's called utility scale solar. Uh, we don't have as much of what's called distributed solar or rooftop solar or basically, you know, solar that you see on top of a house that's like less than 1%. So there's definitely lots of room for us to grow. Um, sometimes folks have um, installations and they're not visible um, because they're on the roof or they might be facing on the back, but there's definitely lots of room to grow. Um, I think people don't understand the same, you know, how good the savings can be with solar. The other thing, it's not just the savings, but it can also improve the uh, value of your home, but it's not a taxable improvement. Yeah. And and I want to say, too, I mean, Florida many years ago was not even in the top five. At least we're top three now. But still, we're the Sunshine State. Let me go to another listener comment here. Uh, this is from Janet in Glenvar Heights. She says, there should be a push and incentives to make it more affordable. We are the Sunshine State, and we have our AC running almost the whole year. Why would we not use more solar energy? We've looked into it, but the cost is what stops us. There's no guarantees that we'll be able to sell our unused power back to FPL, and we can't store it like they do in Europe. This goes to batteries again. Um, we also heard from Marie in Palmetto Bay. She says, quote, why are we so behind the rest of Europe in energy efficiency? How do we compare to other places like Europe? Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, Laura, you know, Florida again being third. Do we compare to, you know, is anybody doing it way better than we are? Um, yeah, I mean, we can definitely learn, you know, from other states that might have, you know, we have that federal incentive. Uh, but there are, you know, other places that might have rebates or other locally um, available programs like for example the city of Boynton Beach has something called the energy edge rebate where they actually have rebates for folks to install solar they also have some for energy efficiency um, so there's a lot of room to grow in that area I did want to touch base on one of the questions you had about um, like selling electricity back to the utility yes we do net, have net some, metering yes yes exactly yes i wanted to touch base on net metering we do have one-to-one -one net metering so we have a really great net metering uh, law here in florida and 
Um, basically, it's kind of like those old school cell phone plans where, you know, any excess electricity that goes into the grid, you get a credit and it rolls over month to month until the end of the year. And then at that point, any excess that you have, um, you do get a credit, but it's at a wholesale rate, which is much lower than a retail rate. So we encourage folks to size the system for what they use, um, but it is a one-to-one. Hmm. Again, talking with Laura Tellez, she's the South Florida Program Coordinator for Solar United Neighbors. That's a nonprofit that helps set up co-ops. So it's helping groups of people set up solar. Let's go back to the questions. I've got J.C. Fernandez in Miami. They said this, quote, for the amount of sunshine that we have here in Florida, we should be doing more to harness it. I'm a real estate agent, and the times that I have sold homes with solar panels, typically, as long Mm -hmm. as they're bought and paid for, properties, they fetch higher prices. It is a shame that we aren't doing more to wean ourselves off of nuclear power. Um, on that one, I will say that, uh, you know, FPL only produces 15% of their power nuclear. Uh, we heard from Leslie Miami Shores. She wants to know about residential solar tax incentives. What should people know about those when someone is deciding on putting up solar? What are the federal or state rebates or tax credits? Okay, you talked about this before. So a repeat again, there is a federal um, incentive and it's going to drop. But does Florida offer anything else? Um, so there. There's a couple things that um, we have in the state, and one is that there is no sales tax on the purchase of a solar system. Okay. And then the other thing that I mentioned, which is um, it's not a taxable improvement. So it does increase the property value of your home, but you're not taxed on that improvement. All right. And again, the Fed, the Fed, you said that uh, the federal incentive is at 26% right now, but it's going to go down. Yes. So no better time to go solar than now. It is going down to 22% next year and then scheduled to go away for um, residential installations in 2024. All right. We heard from uh, Asha Cope Edwards in Broward. She says, quote, I'm interested in switching to renewable energy, but uh, affordability and cost effectiveness. Again, that's another one we've touched on. John in West Palm Beach, he says, quote, certainly we should push for more solar energy where the sunshine state after all. Florida should subsidize solar panels for roofs to low to middle income houses before our roofs are all underwater. Um, you know, this goes back to do you get the sense, and I don't know how much time you ever spend with lawmakers, especially in Tallahassee. Laura, do you get the sense that lawmakers are on board with this idea? They want more solar, or do they just push it off to the utilities or, or local governments? Um. So this year, there was a bill that was introduced that would dramatically change net metering. And from, you know, FPL, at the end, from FPL, from yes. A, yes, and, and that was vetoed by the government, by the governor. And, you know, I do know that most residents in Florida um, want to keep net metering and want to develop more solar. So I think we need to, you know, connect with our elected officials and, you know, voice you know, I would invite listeners to reach out to their um, elected officials to let them know how important solar is to them. Mm. Also, we heard from Mike in Broward. He says this, quote, having a solar power infrastructure would be extremely beneficial for after a hurricane. Self-sufficiency may not generate perpetual profits, but sustainability and a power supply available during disaster recovery could be useful for years to come. Do you have you heard stories from folks uh, Laura, who, you know, they had solar Absolutely. panels and after a hurricane, they were able to go without, they were able to not, they didn't lose power. 
Um, yeah, so if they have storage, they're able to keep their power on. We have also heard of, um, you know, people, solar homeowners that have storage that have become like a resiliency hub in their community where folks have gone to their house to charge their cell phone or for, you know, air conditioning relief. Um, so it's not only good for the homeowner, but it's good for the entire community. I know there are a lot of challenges in Florida. It's not just getting solar set up at home. A lot of us live in apartments. We live in condos. There are HOAs. There's all kinds of rules, uh, you know, but I'm going to have to end it here. And we're going to continue this conversation uh, in the near future because, you know, solar is just a big part of our lives. It probably should be bigger. But, Laura, I want to thank you so much for the time. And, again, just to mention, you're working on a co-op right now here in Miami-Dade. Yes, we are working on Miami right now, solarunitedneighbors.org slash Miami, and we're opening one in Broward in just a couple of weeks. Laura, thank you so much for the time and all the information. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Again, Laura Tella, South Florida Program Coordinator for Solar United Neighbors. So now you've heard about solar from the perspective of a pro-solar co-op. Next week, we want to continue our look at solar in South Florida with different voices. So keep the questions coming. In the meantime, you can find more at WLRN's coverage on solar energy. It's on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, for Wildlife Thursday, we collect the reporter's notebook stories from WLRN's own environment reporter, Jenny Stiletovich. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. It is Wildlife Thursday, and today we're going to talk about an array of animals. We're going to cover land, sky, and water. We're going to look at thousands of birds that cross our skies with the changing of seasons. We're going to look into the python surgery room. First, we're going to talk about a creature that often gets overlooked and works as an underwater housekeeper. But if you get too close, it'll hurt. And I'll give you some time to think a bit about that. You can guess, and we'll tell you what it is here in a moment. First, though, let me introduce uh, WLRN's environment reporter, Jenny Stiletovich, to talk about her encounters with wildlife, because it's been plenty. Jenny, great to have you. Hi, Lewis. You grew up in South Florida. So, I did. Yeah, so, I mean, you, I, you've seen everything by now. What, what are some of your early memories, though, of encountering wildlife, fun or dangerous? Yeah, a little of both. Oh, okay, all right, good. <laughs> so, so I grew up in a house in, in Wilton Manors on a canal, and I can remember seeing my manatees in, in our canal. Um, also, one time there was a coral snake on our back patio. Uh, when I was little, too, we'd go, take, go down to the Keys a lot, um, and I, I'm pretty sure they don't do this anymore, but I remember getting pulled around in a boat by a dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> That's never happened. You, everybody's had these incredible experiences. I've been here forever too, and I, I haven't. But oh well. Um, <laughs> how did you get into environment reporting? I mean, was it moments like those, or what, was it something else? Well, no. So I, uh, I'm trying to, you know, I started out my career as a, uh, I covered crime as a police reporter, um, and I was general assignment. Then I, when my kids were born, I was home freelancing, and I started doing these stories for the Miami Herald about uh, some park contamination around Miami from old incinerators, or as they were finding a lot of arsenic in, in parks. So I started doing those stories. Um, freelancing for the Herald and the, the full-time environmental reporter, Curtis Morgan, had been there, you know, he'd been covering the, the environment for, for a decade. It's a great environmental reporter, was switching over to editing. So that job opened up. So I applied. And I, and I have to say, 
it's such a hard beat that I was, I was a lot, I was hesitant. <laughs> oh, but you, you go from crime to wildlife and, and the environment. Well, I found similarities, <laughs> right? Oh my gosh. All right. So I, I mentioned at the beginning that we're going to be talking about a number of different creatures. And I mentioned the first one, it is a underwater housekeeper, but you got to be careful because if you touch it, it will hurt. Um, I know you know what it is, but I'm going to see if anybody else has guessed. Uh, you know, it, it's a beautiful creature to look at, but again, it does look kind of freaky. Jenny, what, what are we talking about here? We, we are talking about the bane of divers, the ah. sea urchin. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it, it, tell me a little bit about, I mean, for, have, you, have you seen one up close? I have actually stepped on one and oh. they do hurt. <laughs> oh, what? okay. They, what? But it was in Jamaica, you know, because they're they're gone from from Florida. It's really hard to find sea urchins now. Yeah, the only um, one I saw here, obviously, was over at the the Frost Science Museum. Oh my God, what did that feel like? It's painful. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, they are linked. Is is it true they're linked to a famous Greek philosopher? Right. So Aristotle was the first to actually describe them in the fourth century BC um, and, and diagram them and, 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 and draw their, their little mouths, which still retain his name. They're, the mouth is called the Aristotle's lantern because it's the opening is it's, it's like a circle ringed by teeth. It's fairly creepy looking. So they're, they're complete. I mean, go, this goes back, I think, what, to the 80s that they were pretty almost pretty much wiped out close to it right they, they were they were they think oh. a disease came through the panama canal and they within a year uh through the caribbean and through florida we lost you know all these sea urchins and you know i mean again besides being the bane to divers or anybody who steps on one what the role they play in the ecosystem is actually really fascinating Right. So the, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, w right after the sea urchins died off, they had a, a white band disease that killed Elkhorn coral. I think they started to realize that there was a, and then the Elkhorn weren't coming back, that there was this connection. Um, the sea urchins live on the reefs too and eat algae. Um, and so what they do is keep the surface of the reef kind of clean of algae so that when, um, so the coral can, can find a clean place to, to grab hold and start to grow. Um, and they've they've discovered that without those urchins eating the algae, it's harder for the coral to to take hold. And with all the other <laughs> problems um, that coral are facing between warmer waters because of climate change and the you know our stony coral disease that broke out broke out off Virginia Key in 2014, um, it's they the, the coral need need the sea urchins. What's the status right now? What are we doing to try to replace those populations? So um, a couple of years ago, the Florida Aquarium successfully lab bred sea urchins, um, sort of like what they're doing with coral. And so they're working to get numbers high enough and they, and they figured out they can breed enough of them in numbers to put them out on the reef. The Frost Museum actually uh, a couple of years ago maybe it was a year ago, I lose track of time, went out and, you know, scoured the reef from the Keys up to West Palm to find urchins um, that they could then transplant on one of the reef restoration tracks. And so Frost has been monitoring those transplanted or the, the, the urchins they collected. And at the same time, the Florida Aquarium is getting ready to, to try and put out the lab bred urchins. The problem with urchins um, is that they need to be in great numbers and close together to breed. You know, mm. if they're far apart, 
they're slow moving. <laughs> they're not going to find each other. Um, so that's the trick. And you know what? Uh, I know we have some photos too from our trip to the frost because uh, we got to go into one of their labs where they have tanks of these. And again, very beautiful. And also great that I have a wall between me and them. Again, talking with <laughs> WLRN's environment reporter, Jenny Stiletovich for our Wildlife Thursday. She's here to talk to us about all of the wildlife experiences she's had. And you can find a lot of her stories, all of her stories, by the way, on our social media at WLRN Sundial. All right, let's switch from the underwater housekeeper, which is the sea urchin, and let's talk about birds. Um, mm-hmm. Geographically, South Florida, very interesting place uh, because of our proximity to the Caribbean, Latin America. Uh, and in Miami, you could talk about, you know, everything. Well, again, that, that connection to everything south and then so much north, they all pass basically through here. Um, where does this put us, I guess, Florida, South Florida, in terms of migrating birds? Do they all really pass through here? Well, not all of them. I mean, just the ones that are coming up in up, up the Atlantic flyway. Um, and the way I've heard it described, or us anyway, and our position in the flyway is that we're kind of the geographic funnel. You know, so these little and well, migrating birds of all species um, come up the flyway from as far away as Greenland, um, you know, in South America to head toward northern breeding grounds. You visited the Cape Florida Banding Station. What is that, by the way? That's right. The Cape Florida Bird Banding Station. Okay. Um, it is essentially like a, a tiny little platform in Bill Baggs Park with a with a tent over it. I mean, it, it is not very sophisticated, but they do uh, a, an amazing amount of work. They've banded about 40,000 birds um, since they opened in 2002, I think. And it's largely been um, the, you know, the job of one one woman, um, Michelle Davis, a biologist who used to work at Everglades National Park and started the banding station. And then she's got a bunch of volunteers. And you talked to her. This was for a story that you had reported on some time ago. And here you are, the two of you. She's explaining how the birds are caught. Imagine a volleyball net except for with thread. To catch the birds, Davis strings the nets under trees with berries like ficus. And the birds don't see the net and they fly into it. The nets are only up when someone is manning the station and they get checked every 20 minutes. Davis and the volunteers take their time untangling the birds from the nets so they don't get hurt. Then they slip them into a drawstring bag where the birds quickly calm down. Over the years, Davis has collected dozens of these bags that either she made or volunteers made for her from old sheets and shirts. One bag was made from boxers that belonged to a volunteer's husband. So what are some of the cool things that you got to see that day? So, well, first of all, the way they handle the birds, I find amazing. I mean, you have to, these, these are a lot of the birds they are catching are little warblers. So they're about the size of a, of a golf ball and, you know, they're, they're fragile, little delicate birds and they're, they're getting pulled out of nets and the way they gently remove them. And then they kind of have a way they hold their feet on their, you know, to get the bird perched on their finger and just kind of put pressure on their feet. I mean, it's it's amazing that they don't <laughs> these birds don't get hurt and they don't. 
Um, but they, you know, just watching them handle the birds, they use these little PVC pipes um, to put the birds down, face down in the pipes on a tiny little scale so they can weigh them. Because the whole point is not just to ban the birds, it's to collect information about how they're doing, what their weight, their muscles, you know, to, to kind of gauge their health um, to get and, and this database with 40,000 birds, you know, that's a lot of information about the health of these migrating birds. Is it is the station almost shut down because of the pandemic and funding? Well, they were so, so Michelle was, you know, kind of a one woman show, um, depending on the kindness of strangers and volunteers, and she didn't have consistent funding. And then Tropical Audubon uh, came came through and provided that to that consistent funding. So I think right as I was doing the story, they were finalizing the partnership. All right. You can't be an environment reporter in Florida, South Florida, especially without talking about and reporting on pythons. Uh, <laughs> and you were, this is a story you did. You were actually present at a python surgery. This is them putting, uh, implanting a transmitter. Sir, are you comfortable intubating Rosemary? Once Ridgely and vet tech Rosemary Lucas get the snake knocked out, they attach an ultrasound to monitor its heart, the same kind doctors use on pregnant women. Ridgely works quickly, slicing between the python scales to open up its body cavity. You gotta have a nice sharp scalpel to get in between there. I like the Doppler noise. It's like my comfort noise during surgery, right? That does not necessarily mean the snake is alive still though. I had University of Florida bring me a python once that had been frozen for two weeks. And when we thought it out to do the necropsy, the heart started beating again. Before he inserts the transmitter, Ridgely asked McAllister to do a quick test to make sure it works. You already got the frequency? This is step one. And it turns out, at least for the humans involved, it's the easy part of the project. All right. First of all, you just told me that you thought a snake and it came back to life. Thank you. That's that's now my nightmares. Um, this was followed by a game of hide and seek. Jenny, what? The transmitter they implanted in it, which is like a foot long that they thread through the, the, the bottom of the snake, um, you know, transmit signals for, for, for miles. So, so we had the transmitter, um, and, you know, went months later and, or I'm sorry, I can't remember how long it was afterwards, but to try and find the snake at the, in big Cypress where they'd let it go. Um, so we, we started out at the monument campground in a swamp buggy. Um, and basically they had done an aerial survey the day before. So they kind of knew the general area. So they, by, we got, from swamp buggy to where we got out and then just kind of, you know, macheted our way through the, through the, 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 the swamp and then into the water and <laughs> track and the, um, our, our USGS, uh, scientists like had the transmitters that she was just holding up and, and following the signal. I mean, it was, it was pretty amazing. I got to say, <laughs> And that's Jenny out in the field while I am here comfortable and safe in the studio. Um, Jenny, your daughter, I had to mention this, your daughter's actually in Panama right now studying corals, and you've done your fair share of reporting on corals. What, what are the conversations like with her right now? What is she working on? 
Well, you know, when I can get her to respond to a WhatsApp <laughs> message from me, yeah. which is not easy, um, it's they're working really hard hours. So most of what I hear about is the the long days and and, and where she's what she's finding to eat. Um, but they are they're working on sea urchins. Actually, she's she's a, a undergrad, so she's sort of the low man on the totem pole and 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 just does a lot of the the kind of grunt work. So she's helping out with a couple of different projects, and one is on sea urchins, and one is the other is on on coral um, and coral diversity. How does it, you know? How does she and her work inspire what you're doing? You know, since she was little, she has just loved being in the water, being any place buggy in the mangroves. We used to have, have to keep her from climbing in mangrove trees um, and just watching her grow up and, and, you know, kind of love that so much as a mother, you want to protect not just her, but the things that she loves. So, so that's probably the inspiration. And I'm just waiting for the day when you do the story and your daughter is the subject of that story. <laughs> oh, how meta that would be. Jenny, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Lewis. All right. Again, WLRN's environmental reporter, Jenny Stiletovitz, joining us for Wildlife Thursdays. And by the way, find all of these stories on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Well, that is our program for this, what is it, June 30th, right? Already the end of the month, July 1st, coming up tomorrow. Uh, Some breaking news, by the way, from earlier today, a judge has temporarily blocked Florida's 15-week abortion ban, which was supposed to go into effect tomorrow. It was blocked for violating the Florida Constitution's right to privacy. We're going to be back with a live show on Tuesday, and we're going to speak with a doctor in South Miami who's passionate about safe access to abortion, and we ask her about the recent ruling. Before then, again, it's the 4th of July, so we'll be bringing you back some of our favorite conversations that we've had over the past several months to remind us of what it means to be not just American, but all the things that make us South Floridians as well. So please have a wonderful Friday, a great weekend, and a great holiday, a safe holiday, please. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. By the way, if you missed any of the program, you can go back, catch the rebroadcast tonight at 8. Or, again, maybe you like to listen to the podcast. Find the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. But if you do, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Tell us how much you love us, and we appreciate that. Again, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute.